To the Mary Mac Show, where we will be talking about your feelings, experiences, and pain following the death of a loved one. Good evening, everyone. This is Mary Mack of the Mary Mack Show. I have the privilege today of being with Dana Ullman. And for those of you who are not aware, he is one of the premier individuals in the field of homeopathy. And I've followed his progress and his career and his books and everything that he has taught me over so many years. Am I making you blush? <laughs> I look, I look good in blush. I look good in blush. <laughs> blush on, blush on. So I'm so privileged for him to be with us tonight. We're going to learn a lot about homeopathy. And specifically, we're going to learn about how it helps us when we're grieving the death of a loved one, as well as when we're at the end of our life and how that can help us as well. So let me tell you just a little bit about him. Dana Ullman, MPH, CCH, is one of America's leading advocates for homeopathy. He has authored 10 books, including The Homeopathic Revolution, Why Famous Pe People and Cultural Heroes Choose Homeopathy. Oh, that's great. Homeopathy A to Z, Homeopathy Medicines for Children and Infants. That's a very important thing for us to learn. Discovering Homeopathy, and the best-selling book, Everybody's Guide to Home Homeopathic Medicine with Stephen Cummings, MD. And by the way, that was the first book I read and studied, and I still have it somewhere in a box in the garage, unfortunately. <laughs> you, you, you are amongst the hundreds of thousands of women who use that book. I mean, it's the most popular guidebook for using homeopathic medicine. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. You know, many, many women have told me that it's on their bedstand right next to Lady Chatterley's lover. Oh, so wow. Right wow. Well, every time that I needed to know what to take for a symptom I had, that's where I went. It's a, it's a phenomenal book. And Dana has created an e-course called How to Use a Homeopathic Medicine Kit which integrates 80 short videos averaging 15 minutes in length with his famous ebook that is a communal 
excuse me, continual growing resource to 300 plus clinical studies published in peer review medical journals testing homeopathic medicines. Now, what I want you to know is homeopathy can come in little vials about this big, and there are a number of them in a, in a kit. And that's what you start with. You buy the kit and how many remedies are in a kit, Dana? Like 80? Well, different, different companies create different kits. I mean, there's some that have 36, some that have 60. Right. Um, you know, um, uh, whatever you can get. I mean, uh, yes. you, know, you don't have to buy a kit. You can buy them individually. Yes. Uh, but the cost per medicine in a kit is literally about 25% of what buying them all would be. So the kits are a super good deal. And the bottom line is, is that as it turns out, we and our children tend to get sick on weekends and at night <laughs> when you know, stores are closed. And, you know, it's get it's good to get in touch with your inner Boy Scout and Girl Scout and be prepared. That's right. Especially now. Yeah. And so um, this ebook that he he uh, developed for the remedies combines the descriptions of these studies with practical clinical information on how to use homeopathic medicines for a hundred plus common ailments. This ebook is entitled "Evidence Based Homeopathic Family Medicine," and it is an invaluable resource. Dana has certified has been certified in classical homeopathy. And to me, those are the most, the highest professional description, I would say. Uh, that's right. I do. I feel that way because I've been to other individuals claim they were homeopaths and they gave me these little pills that had, you know, uh, less than 30, you know, and or less than six. And they added them all up. And it never worked for me. I have to have my 200 C to make sure it goes well for me. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's it. Uh, the higher the number, uh, the more powerful the medicine is. It is. Exactly. And I'll talk about that as yep. we go. Um, he's the founder. Um, let's see. Forgive me. It's okay. You've already said enough. We can go on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want you to know. But I do want everyone to know how to get to you. This is important. Right. So his right. his mm -hmm, his um, his website is www.homeopathic.com. And he's published over 35 books on homeopathy. So we're talking to the premier individual out there in this field. That's how I feel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so... Dana, can you please tell us about your background and like where you grew up, where you went um, to college and about your basic family life and how you even got into this? Right. Well, I grew up in Los Angeles. I was born in a hospital that doesn't exist anymore in Hollywood. So I was actually born in Hollywood. Wow. And uh, my father was a pediatrician with a specialty of allergy, which is more than a tad ironic or even cosmic. Yes. Because allergy is based on the homeopathic principle of using small doses of what you're allergic to, to help stimulate the body's own immune and defense system. 
and one of the three doctors to create the American Academy of Allergy was a homeopathic doctor from San Jose. Oh, wow. Um, so um, I had this homeopathic principle uh, in my very blood. And then I was named, my mother worked in the, in the entertainment industry when, um, before she met my father, uh, there was a television show called The Jack Benny Show. Yes, I remember it. I remember. And there was a singer on the Jack Benny show called Dennis Day. And uh, she was his assistant. And I was named after Dana Andrews, who is a famous 1950s singer, actor, and dancer. Um, Multi-talented. They wanted someone to be multi-talented. So don't encourage me to sing, but I can dance. (laughs) That's great. And so uh, I had no real intention of following into my father's footsteps. Um, uh, Being a child of the 60s, we may have done something like our parents, but with a serious twang. And Mm -hmm. so getting into homeopathy was my twang. Um, And initially, he was very skeptical uh, of homeopathy, but he had no idea what it was, but he was skeptical of it. I think a lot of people are that way. Yeah. And then, and then he's he learned something about it. He goes, "Oh, it must it, it 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 doesn't work because you use too small of a dose." And I said, "Do you think of yourself as a scientist?" He said, "Absolutely." He goes, "Well, then, then you've tested it. Then, if you say that, I mean, you can just say I don't know much about it. You don't have to say skepticism, but you know." Uh, and so, what ended up happening is my sister had a serious abdominal problem for a number of years. She went to five different specialists, had exploratory surgery twice. Wow. We couldn't figure out what it is. How so old was she at the time? Uh, she was about 20 years old. Oh, wow. And um, she, um, I asked her if she wanted to try homeopathy. And she said, no. And I said, look, at this <laughs> stage, you know, our dad has exhausted what he could do. Why don't you try it? So she yeah. said, okay. And I interviewed her. And then I called her two months later because I hadn't heard from her to ask her if there's any changes. And she right. goes, oh, I think the pain went away on its own. <sighs> so this was a daily abdominal pain for two years every day. And it went away on its own. And... um and then the next time that we were both at our, our family's home, I brought her chart with me. And she says, Dana, you know, you called me many, many months afterwards. And I said, actually, it was two months. And I said, did it seem like a long time since you had that pain? When we talked, he goes, yeah, a real long time ago. Probably the next day it went away. Now, mind you, for my father to hear this conversation was impressive because here was someone that it, it wasn't a placebo effect because she didn't w- believe that it was the remedy. Right. Um, and that was very convincing. But what really impressed my father was when I told him that I got a phone call from a very famous violinist, a Jewish violinist by the name of Yehudi Menuhin, okay. who uh, my father was, besides a pediatrician, he was uh, enamored with the violin. And he thought of even becoming a professional violinist at one point. But being Jewish and, you know, going into medicine seemed to be an easier fit. Yes. My brother supported that, too. Yeah. Um, my, da- my David's Jewish. <laughs> yeah. So uh, 
the bottom line is, is that Yehudi Menuhin was president of England's homeopathic uh, organization. And he was playing at the San Francisco Symphony. So I sent one of my books to the symphony with his name on it. And this was a book that I had had the physician to the Queen of England write the forward to. What? It was a book I wrote in 1989 called Homeopathy, Medicine for the 21st Century. So it's sort of funny to call a book medicine for the 21st century now, but this was remember written in, in the late 80s. Um, and so he was calling me to thank me. And uh, then I asked him if I could interview him for an article. And he says, no, but I'll write you a letter about my thoughts. So when I told my father about, you know, his own personal hero, um, you know, being a violinist, being Jewish, I mean, he was a person that actually even played in Carnegie Hall when he was like 10 years old. Wow. Um, and um, uh, and he was a philanthropist. And, um, you know, later I learned that he was a vegetarian and a yoga uh, practitioner, but he loved homeopathy. And, and so that really impressed my father. Uh, so much so that he encouraged our family that when we get sick, we should try homeopathy first, which is really such a hypocrite. Hippocratic thing is first do no harm. First, That's we should right. explore and exhaust even the safer methods before resorting to the big guns of conventional medicine. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, I did my undergraduate work at Berkeley, and then I did my graduate work in public health at Berkeley. MPH doesn't stand for mighty fine homeopath; it stands <laughs> for public health. Yes, but you can you can use it for both. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> I do. And um, and I got involved in public health because I wanted to be involved in health policy also, to not just educate people about homeopathy, but to uh, have health and med medical policies that's created bridge work to it. Um, along the way, I got arrested for practicing medicine without a license back in 1976. Wow. We won the case. And so we differentiated. I wasn't practicing medical care. I was practicing health care. Mm -hmm. and, and whereas medical care is a diagnosis and treatment of disease, I was treating a person, not a disease. Because at no time do I diagnose a person other than you have a Mary Mac disease, you know, a uh, according to your own body, mind, symptom syndrome. Right. So we're not treating uh, a migraine headache. We're not treating uh, pancreatic cancer. We're treating a, a person with these specific symptoms. And so, and, and the logic of homeopathy is for those of us that believe in evolution, and I would hope that it would be all of us, evolution states that living organisms will do all that they can to survive. And our symptoms are not breakdown. Our symptoms are our body-mind's effort to survive. So it will create a fever. It will create a discharge. It will inflame. It will create high blood pressure. It will create pain. Wow. It will do a whole variety of different things um, in order to fight infection, adapt to stress, deal with environmental exposures, um, to heal it, to defend and heal itself. And so our symptoms are actually our defenses. So when conventional medicine gives us a drug to suppress a symptom, hey. that's the bad news. 
So in fact, really, if you think about it, there's only two schools of thought in medicine and healing. Those methods that work against symptoms and those that work with the body's wisdom. And homeopathy and various natural therapies are the latter. Now, homeopathy is specific oriented towards this, but other natural therapies do different types of things to nourish and nurture the body, that inner doctor in us. Um, and, um, you know, even an infection is commonly said it's caused by a bacteria or virus or fungus. Don't believe that baloney. Wow. It's not caused by, it's, it is a cofactor. So right now in your throat and my throat, we have streptococcus. We have pneumonococcus in our bronchioles. We have cancer cells in different parts of our body, but our immune system keeps it in check. Interesting. So only when we get stressed, do we get malnourished? Do we get, you know, certain exposures that cause certain symptoms that, that our defenses get weakened that then allows the bacteria or virus to, to flourish. I mean, an analogy would be if there was a farmer and the farmer had um, a swamp on its land or a little lake that, you know, it's not a rushing river. Right. And uh, it's a perfect breeding ground for mosquitoes. Yes. Because if a mosquito lays an egg in a river with the river moving, the mosquito eggs would, would, would break and the poor mosquitoes would die. I know you're crying. You're really so sad. <laughs> a, a, a lake or a pond or a swamp doesn't have that circulation. It's quiet waters. Right. So that farmer notices that there's all these mosquitoes on his property. So he uses an insecticide and kills all the mosquitoes and they die. But the, 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 the pond or swamp is still a swamp and other mosquitoes come in and lay their eggs. So the, the farmer sprays again. Right. And the mosquitoes come back again. And it goes on until a couple of things happen. Either the land is now so toxic that he and his children cannot get near that, that pond, that lake, that swamp. Right. Or the mosquitoes have adapted to the pesticides. And, and, you know, insects do adapt. And now they're no longer killed by it. Yes. Uh, now, this metaphor is akin to the metaphor for antibiotics. Um, they, an antibiotic is wonderfully useful. Don't get me wrong. I'm pro-antibiotic, but a pro-appropriate use of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, even so that you know an important fact above and beyond any research or double-blind studies or whatnot, and there are 400 of them at least published in peer-reviewed journals, but before double-blind studies in the 19th century, there were whole types of, of pandemics and epidemics, cholera, typhoid fever, yellow fever, scarlet fever, pneumonia, this whole thing, and where large percentages of people would die. That's where homeopathy was the strongest. There's a book that I have published in 1900 that compares the death rate in different homeopathic hospitals versus conventional medical hospitals. And the death rate is by comparison often two to one or eight to one. Wow. And you see, rather than attack the microbe, in homeopathy, we look for a medicine that would mimic the symptoms the person has. So during many scarlet fever 
uh, epidemics, we we found that actually during many epidemics, there's often certain um, a limited number of remedies that are commonly given more than others. So scarlet fever commonly had the need for homeopathic doses of belladonna. Really? And cholera commonly had a need for a, a medicine called made from camphor. And um, now it's not true in the AIDS epidemic or even COVID because although there are certain remedies uh, and arsenicum and bryonia and gelsemium are, are some of the medicines that were commonly indicated, people do get idiosyncratic symptoms with this um, uh, COVID. And so there's not one or two or even three that should be given. It's depending upon really that person's unique symptom complex. Wow. But um, so rather than attack the microbe, which doesn't really strengthen the person, that's the thing about homeopathy is if you have an infection and if you treat it right, the person can and should be stronger. So people that get long COVID or, you know, chronic fatigue after having the flu, it's be, it, it's for a variety of reasons. In fact, one of the common reasons, not the only reason, that people have long COVID or even chronic fatigue is people make a silly and stupid even mistake. I understand it, mind you. Stupid meaning not that they're they're stupid, but the, the the action is because until you have respect for the body's wisdom, when you have a fever, there's a tendency in America in some part of Western civilization to assume the fever is bad and that you have to suppress it, you know? Mm -hmm. And what's so interesting is in the 1918 flu, in 1917, the year before, aspirin went off, off uh, patent. So it became a, a cheaper drug than ever. And when people got the flu, the AMA actually recommended 25 aspirin tablets a day. Wow. Because they found that if you did fewer, that immediately, as soon as the aspirin wore off, the fever would come back. And that's exactly the way you'd expect it, because if you know anything about infection, the fever is the way the body is burning out the infective yes. organism. It, yes. It's like the body's pasteurizing itself. And during a fevered state, the body secretes this antiviral chemical called interferon. So if you take aspirin, it decreases the, the fever. It it tells the body you don't need to create interferon. Wow. And, 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 and then here's the amazing thing. In the 1918 flu, people died from a very unusual symptom of a flu. They died from bleeding in their lungs. Ooh. Now, what drug causes bleeding? Aspirin. Aspirin. That's <laughs> aspirin. And to this day, the AMA has not apologized. And, and mind, the, mind you, I've talked to some experts on the on this, and they said, oh, that had a minor effect. Well, tell me, if if you were to prescribe 25 aspirin tablets a day for a patient that had the flu, do you think you'd be able to keep your license? Yeah. No, 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 not at all. Exactly. So, you know, you know, the degree of defensiveness and, and you know, cognitive dissonance, you know, strikes again where they've invested themselves in the paradigm so much yes. that they can never admit they've been wrong ever. It's true. It's so and, true. And so today with COVID, yes, 
they might uh, not recommend aspirin as much, but then they'll recommend Motrin. They'll recommend, you know, Tylenol. There are anti-inflammatory drugs that will suppress the fever. And they say, oh, I'm only recommending a couple doses. In other words, the good news is they're not recommending 25 of these tablets a day. But mind you, whenever you suppress the body's own defenses, you do so at risk. That makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. You know, what you mentioned a little bit ago was about how years ago in this country, in the United States, and I don't know, I I guess they did overseas and maybe they still do, but they had homeopathic hospitals. Oh, there were over 100 hospitals in America. And Uh, what happened with that? Well, there were 22 medical schools, too, in, in 1900. Boston University, University of Michigan. Uh, University of, of, of Minnesota, University of Iowa, um, New York Medical College was called New York Homeopathic Medical College, Hahnemann wow. Medical School in Philadelphia, named after the founder of homeopathy. Yes, yes. I uh, had friends of mine who went to Hahnemann. And, and this is a longer story than we could get into, but I will tell you this. In 1900, the AMA was a relatively weak organization. Although that was larger than the homeopathic organization, which we only represented about 20% of doctors. Okay. Now, mind you, many doctors were not members of the AMA, so don't get me wrong. It's not that even doctors that did conventional medicine were supporters of them. They were a, um, a, a criminal organization, as you're about to hear. So the new president of the AMA comes in, and he becomes the president and the editor of the, the journal of the AMA. Okay. And he came up with the brilliant idea of, of creating the AMA seal of approval on drugs. And to get the seal of approval, you do not have to prove safety or efficacy. Whoa. None. But you had to do one thing that was very good. You had to say what was in your drug. There were no secret formulas allowed. That's great. And so that's how they presented this as a benefit. But the second thing that they didn't tell people, in order to get the seal of approval on drugs, you had, as a drug company, had to agree to advertise in every national, regional, and local AMA publication. In other words, you had to give the AMA a lot of money. Yes. So that's how the AMA got rich. Wow. It was a legal form of, of racketeering, really. It's almost like big former how they give to the uh, political, political, almost the same thing. It's the same thing today. Same thing. And um, wow. And so so the difference between homeopathy and the conventional model is in homeopathy, we have a profound respect for evolution. And the AMA gives lip service to that. We have a profound respect for that doctor inside of us. They have no respect for that doctor inside of us. No respect. That whatever symptoms you have needs an antibiotic, an antihistamine, an ant, you know, anti- against, against, against. I mean, it's just against whatever the body's doing. And um and, and because your your program's on depression, I want to talk a little bit about that. Thank you. And first thing I want to say is, is that depression has a psychological component 
and a physiological component. And let's not assume that even the majority of depressive people in America are from psychological reasons. Really. Because women that are out there know that on a monthly basis, when they had, were at a certain age, they had their menstrual cycle. And just prior to their menstrual cycle, they had their PMS syndrome. Right. And if you think about it, what a menstrual cycle is, is a funeral. That egg that the woman has created has not been uh, fertilized. And so the egg has died and the, the bleeding is a funeral procession of escorting the egg out, out of the body. I love the way you said that. (laughs) And and therefore it makes sense that women prior to their cycle would be more emotional. They'd be weepy. They'd be irritable. They might even want to feather their nest a little bit and clean up because they feel like, like maybe I just need to clean up my house in order to make my inner side more uh, hospitable to a good sperm. And, the, and thus procreate. Um, so, you know, so many people also have diseases, physical diseases, infections, uh, environmental exposures that that uh, can create an, an, a, in various influences on the body, but any influence on the lungs would also create certain depressive states because In Chinese medicine and acupuncture, every meridian system is related not just to an organ, but also to an emotion. So the lungs are related to uh, happiness and depression. The uh, kidney meridian, which we have the adrenal glands right above it, are related to fear. Wow. Um, uh, The liver is related to bile and biliousness and irritability. So when a person is really irritable and angry, you know, it's often people that have some liver damage. You know, sometimes too much drinking, too much drugging. Drugging meaning not just recreational drugs, but sometimes therapeutic drugs. And people who are depressed literally have decreased respiration. I mean, it's like they can hardly breathe. Uh, And then if you think about a tear, a tear, what what is its largest component other than water is salt. Now, uh, being a nice Jewish boy, I don't really quote from the Bible very much, (laughs) but, but there's a couple stories in the Bible that I think are instructive. And there is the story of Lot and his family leading uh, Sodom uh, because they don't like the things that are going on there. And they're told to not look back, but go forward. That's right. And and Lot's wife turns around. In other words, to look in the past, she then turned into a pillar of salt. Yes. Because literally crystallized into the past. And so when you dwell in the past, you become crystallized in it. And one of our leading remedies, and I say one because in homeopathy, one, there's 
many different types of grief. And there's many different types of expressions of grief. Yes. And then there's different syndromes of grief. But uh, for more long-term grieving situations, um, a homeopathic doses of nature mirror, which is the Latin Nat, nature, Nat so, uh, right? <laughs> is a very important medicine. I mean, it is literally in our top five medicines throughout the world of medicines that we prescribe. And when people have had, you know, deep and or profound grieving situations, uh, the nice thing about homeopathy, if you're just using a couple doses at a time, homeopathic medicines, I want to emphasize, are not vitamin pills. These are not medicines you take daily. These right. are not medicines that you take for long periods of time at all. If you're doing so under the care of a homeopath, that homeopath is watching many different things. And most of the time, when I prescribe my medicines, I give one or two doses per two to eight weeks. Uh, and, and that's when you know you're really healing a person because you're not requiring a mechanical pushing of the body that needs to be done three and four and five times a day. You're giving a catalyst so that the body puts itself in right order. And these nanodoses are able to work the more they're potentized, the more they go through this dilution stage of diluting and shaking, diluting and shaking, means that they can go through the blood-brain barrier and into different, deeper parts of the cell and through this, the blood-brain barrier deeper than those that aren't as diluted. Because we have to remember that every cell membrane is a membrane that will push out and keep out whatever is foreign. Now, conventional drugs are so strong, they just bash through that membrane, but in doing it, they damage the cell. Same thing, the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier won't allow large or complex molecules to enter. Some push their way in, and of course, they can cause a variety of different drastic problems with our, with our, 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 our mind. But in homeopathic dose, it's such a small dose. It's sift through the, the, the blood-brain barrier and cell membranes without setting off any alarm bells. Then once it's inside the brain, once it's inside the cell, there is an additional sensitivity. And then it says, we've been attacked by, homeop by, by small doses of arsenic. So let's get this arsenic out of the body. And because the symptoms a person has resemble arsenic poisoning, it then helps the body create this immunological reaction to create a healing response for the person. Phenomenal. So I, it, it, it really is just, I can tell you in my practice, I don't cure everybody. I don't. No one does. No. Every single day, I have miracles that often make me cry. Uh, I'm several today. I mean, it, it's really common to have several where, uh, I mean, every, is people that are having dramatic results. Yes. And the trick is, is you have to understand the system of homeopathy. You have to understand the medicines and know how to use them. And it, now we use also these expert system software, which makes our the process of individualizing a medicine a lot easier. Okay. And that's why the first interview with the homeopath will be at least an hour and will cover not only whatever physical symptoms you have, whatever emotional and mental symptoms you have. Yes, because the one thing about homeopathy that's so phenomenal is it treats the entire body. Right. 
You know, if you've ever heard of the Menninger Clinic, it's it's considered really one of the most respected mental health uh, institutions in the world. It started in Topeka, Kansas. But what people don't know is the founder of the Menninger Clinic, Charles Frederick Menninger, was a homeopathic doctor. Mm. And he was even the head of his homeopathic chapter. And he wrote at one point that one should exhaust the homeopathic system before resorting to any other system or method of treatment. That's exactly that how I feel. Two sons. And the two sons became medical doctors and they became complete allopaths and they only use conventional medicines. Wow. Even after seeing how much help, how much health he restored to the, from the dad. Yeah. The father, the father was the brilliant founder, but his sons really took it a completely different direction. But, but, you know, mind you, you know, what ended up happening in the early 20th century with the industrial revolution, you know, the orientation of America and the Western civilization was towards mechanical pushing of the body towards assembly line medicine. So everyone's given the same treatment. So if you have a disease, then you're given the same treatment. The fact that your headache and my headache are so different is, is it, misses the fact that I mean, if you have arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, and I have rheumatoid arthritis, our symptoms are going to be so dramatically different, and yet they'll still give you the same drugs. Yes. And, and they, when they, someone... And, they, and call themselves a science, which is more than a tad ironic. Yeah. More than a tad ironic. But it's cute because I'm practicing medicine, okay? Keep practicing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's not just a science, it's an art. Yes. <laughs> it's an art of fooling people, really. Come on, let's be honest. I agree. And, I totally and, agree. and, and you know, there's there's so much to say there. Yes. Um, so now, mind you, one of the other key remedies that we use for grief in homeopathy is one called Ignatia. Yes. Now, that's not Echinacea. No. Echinacea is an herb for viral infections. And by the way, speaking of Echinacea, a lot of people say, oh, that's an important herb for your immune system. No, actually, it's not for your immune system. It's it's for a unique part of the immune system that fights viral infections. I mean, if you have any immunological problem, echinacea is not the remedy for you. Um, and so, but we use a different botanical entirely called ignatia. Yes. Uh, I-G-N-A-T-I-A, which is for acute stages of grief. So if someone in your family has just passed away or someone near and dear to you has just passed away or you've broken up from a a relationship or your dog has passed away, um, the very first stages of grief, Ignatia, is an important medicine. And one of the key observable symptoms of someone that might benefit from Ignatia is someone who frequently sighs. Right. And would you say they, and also they can't stop crying? Yeah. Yeah. They, well, that can happen. I mean, it doesn't happen all the time, but, you know, um, you know, because different people do express grief in their own different ways. But, you know, there's many uh, people that 
won't necessarily cry a lot, but they will get a lump in their throat. And that's another sign for Ignatia because there it's really not only has is the sigh evidence that they've taken that got their breath taken away. Yes. Uh, but they have a lump in their throat and they really can't say what they need to say. And so um and then and then it's a very important that when you have a need to cry, the crying reflex creates a whole variety of, of chemical reactions that's very important. And if these are not expressed during a grief, then it has a whole variety of effects on your body that lead to a whole variety of symptoms and syndromes and diseases. And that's why sometimes when I give a patient uh, Ignatia or Nature Mirror in particular, the person will have an emotional release that they're finally able to have the cry that they've been waiting for. Yes. Yes. And so, um, and those are some simple remedies that you can use. And these medicines are available in health food stores uh, throughout America. And um, I mean, who'd ever think that salt could be used as a medicine? Of course, the skeptics go mild with that. And they say, well, I should have been here to cured of grief a long time ago because I eat French fries. <laughs> but, but, but they're missing the point. You know, yes. you know, it, it, it's 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 like the atomic bomb isn't just two atoms, you know, running into each other. And, and I mean, if we're going to try and oversimplify things, I would be a skeptic of the atomic bomb because just having atoms smash into each other, heck, I just hit this table and I haven't seen an explosion. <laughs> and so the skeptics are famous for saying, taking a whole bottle of a homeopathic medicine and putting it down their mouth. And they say, you see, there's nothing in it. I've not, I haven't died. I haven't died from taking homeopathic medicine. Therefore, these medicines don't work. Do you see the illogic there? Yes. And these are people that think. They think they're actually defending science. And, and, and somewhat, so, and I would say somewhat ignorant, too. Well, yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful mix of ignorance and arrogance. Yeah, that too. <laughs> the two qualities of an unscientific mind, ignorance and arrogance. I mean, the best scientists are humble. Yes. And 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 I want to, although you might hear a lot of certainty from me, I'm an extremely humble person in terms of, um, you know, I'm. It's not my healing capabilities that help my patients. It's my selection of the medicines. Absolutely. And the medicines have the effect. The medicines, you know, yeah. are dramatic and. Um, you know, I, I'm just the person that dispenses them. So. Yes, but it is your um, experience. It's your yeah. listening capabilities. It's your ability to um, consider all of the symptoms that someone's going through, not just uh, mentally and physically, but sometimes even spiritually. I mean, there are some remedies like sepia, you know, that help with religious issues. 
you know, and so I he, think he uh, deals with so many things, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Oh, I know. Sepia is the the cuttlefish. Yes. And uh, the cuttlefish is in this the snail family, which is, you know, um, uh, it, it it has like a snail uh, a body that is a receptacle. The, okay. the classic feminine principle, but different than a snail, which has this little head that sticks out, the sepia cuttlefish uh, has these long legs, so they can propel themselves in the water. So sepia are often women who are going yes. places, yeah, and 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 it's often women who are, might be thought of as feminists or. Um, uh, have a certain male quality, which is helps balance out their female quality. And so for all types of women's complaints, uh, sepia is a very important medicine. Yes. Um, and for hormonal things, um, uh, you know, it's in the top 10 of homeopathic medicines. And one of the books that my company sells is a brilliant book called Psyche and Substance, Essays on Homeopathy in the Light of Jungian Psychology. Okay. And uh, the author of this book, Edward Whitmont, founded the Jungian Center in New York City. Are you and talking about, are you talking about, because my doctor in New York was Dr. Whitmont. I think it's his son. Oh, that's his son, Ron right. Whitmont. Ron. Who's a fabulous guy in his own right. Yes, he I, is. I adore him. Yes. And his father may have been closer to Yoda than we've ever <laughs> had on the planet. Yes. He was a relatively small man. He grew up in Vienna. He has these had these beautiful, deep blue eyes. Uh, and he was trained with Jung. He trained with some of the best wow. in the world. Uh, and um, And he wrote these series of articles in the 1950s in homeopathic journals that I initially uncovered, and then I I collected them and asked them if we can put them together in a book. And uh, and so when I when you said I published forty books, that doesn't mean I've authored ten. I understand I've what you mean. 40. In other words, I go to authors or I I see writings and I collect the pieces and and put them into print. That's excellent. But, uh, you know, in homeopathy, there's great books, you know, on, you know, explaining homeopathy. There's a book, you know, The Homeopathic Revolution, which is my one of my uh, favorite books that convinces people that homeopathy is valuable because it has stories from many of the most famous people over the last 200 years and what they said and did with homeopathy. So there's stories of a 10 American presidents. Yes. From Abraham Lincoln to Bill Clinton. Uh, there's stories of Charles Darwin and J.D. Rockefeller. There's stories of literary greats, sports superstars, um, corporate leaders and philanthropists, musicians from Beethoven to Tina Turner. Um, there's great stories of actors from John Wayne to Catherine Zeta-Jones. Uh, there's wow. uh, a, a chapter on women's rights leaders. Because Susan B. Anthony and virtually every women's rights leader in America in the 19th century was totally into homeopathy. Wow, I didn't um, know that. And, and the longest stories in the book are of Charles Darwin, 
and of J.D. Rockefeller. And those are really fascinating stories. I mean, I, I like to say that there's a wow experience on every page. And, and at my website, I did post the chapter on literary greats, just because I wanted people to know that the smartest people <laughs> in history. They use it too. Homeopathy. Literally, yeah. Smartest people. And so, um, and, and then there's a chapter on religious leaders and spiritual leaders. I have 10, uh, seven different stories from popes. Wow. In the 20th century. I have stories from many of the most famous Eastern gurus. Um, um, and, um, even the Russian Orthodox church and the Russian czars were into homeopathy. And despite the power of the czars, they were unable to get the conventional doctors to even talk to homeopathic doctors. Oh my God. So despite their power, and it's because the doctors conspired with the drug companies Yes, and, uh, the uh, that that historically ha has been a part of it because what happened is at different times in Europe, for instance, the countries would say that the 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 apothecaries that made the drugs could only charge based on the amount of drug they were prescribing. Okay. So the pharmacies hated to prescribe homeopathic medicines because they got so little money. Yes. <laughs> And it's so what the, what the drug, what the pharmacists were doing is they wouldn't make them up. They'd say, here is homeopathic this. And they would. And so the homeopathic doctors didn't trust the pharmacists. So they learned, they brought in their own pharmacists or they made it up themselves. And Hahnemann, the founder of homeopathy, did this was before there were homeopathic pharmacists. He began making the medicines himself. So he would get arrested. Because at that time, the doctor wasn't allowed to dispense the medicine. Wow. That's Hold on. My son is calling me from uh, Mexico. Hey, Jake, I have to call you back in about 10 minutes, okay? Okay, 10 minutes. Nice. Okay. All right. So um, the one thing I like to finish up with is Orem. I am very concerned about the military, the military um, men and women who come over, come back after war, and they have such a difficult time readjusting. And there is between 20 to uh, statistics are all over the place, but they're claiming that somewhere around 27 to 40, um, you know, soldiers are killing themselves on a daily basis. We know PTSD that they don't get this kind of attention. Of I'm sorry. They don't get the, this attention at the VA at all. I have a friend of mine who came back from Fallujah, um, a complete mess. I mean, he really had a difficult time when he came back. And I remember having a conversation with him and I said, well, how are they helping you? And he said, the problem is, is every time I go back in, they want me to tell them the whole story all over again. And after you do this for months and months and months, you are never getting well. 
You know, you're, you're never you're, you're, leaving you're, you're it. Traumatizing yourself. That's right. And this is what the social workers at the VA are doing for our men and women. And he said to me, Mary, I don't go back anymore. I can't. It's not serving me. And so I know that Orem is for suicidal tendencies. And I wonder if you could speak about that a little bit. Well, the first person to prescribe Orem, which is made from gold. Yes. Was Moses. <gasps> wow. Because if you remember the story from the Bible, whether you read the book or even saw the movie, um, what happened was, was Moses went up to Mount Sinai. Remember, the Israelites collected all their gold and made this image of a golden calf. Right. Right. And when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and saw what was going on, if you remember, he got very upset. He threw into a rage and he smashed a golden calf. Yes. And what the Bible then said, they got very technical. The Bible got technical and pharmacological. He th they then said he smashed the golden calf. He ground it into a powder. And even though they were in a desert, it says they strewn it upon the water. They diluted it in water. And he gave it to the Israelites to drink. Now, this is at a time in history that minerals were never used as medicines. Medicines were plants and animals, never minerals. So this is the first time in history that a mineral was triturated. They said grounded into a powder, diluted in water. Interesting. And what do we use gold for? We use gold for deep and dark depressions, for want of meaning of life and a suicide disposition. So Moses' diagnosis was just that, that these Israelites were no longer going to have faith in a God, but in this idol that wasn't going to serve them. So that then, then they, the Israelites wandered the desert for 40 years. Yes. <laughs> And, 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 you know, they needed to be taking more doses of gold. So um, amazing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the, there's certain medicines that are very important in homeopathy. Uh, even homeopathic doses of opium are very important for fear that people have experienced in their life. Uh, there's a medicine called Staphysagria, which is, for uh, physical or emotional abuse. Interesting. And, and and boy, I use that too much. I um, use it myself because, when I'm very angry. Yeah, yeah. Or especially when, when someone has had an anger situation and they were not able to express their anger. Right. Or, or when somehow they've been embarrassed, publicly embarrassed. That That's a very important medicine. And for, so, you know, if people want to follow up on homeopathy, I invite you to go to my website at homeopathic.com. I also invite people uh, in, between 2010 and 2015, I wrote 40 articles for the Huffington Post when the Huffington Post was before they got connected to AOL and went <laughs> downhill from there. Yeah. Um, and uh, you can see my collection of articles. Don't go to the Huffington Post directly, but if you just do a search under my name, Dana Ullman, and the word Huffington Post, you'll go to my Huffington Post page, 
that you'll see 40 articles for which I'm really infinitely proud of. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And if and if um, individuals who are listening today who are hurting and they want to connect with you and they want to uh, work with you sure. to find just the right constitutional remedy and to deal with what is um, what is going to be the most helpful for, you know, for this stage in their life as they grieve someone who they love dearly and who's no longer with them, then you go to homeopathic.com and you look to or, set or up a connection. Email me at email at homeopathic.com. Now you can get to me by, from my website. There's a place email us at, but but you can all just email at homeopathic.com. I'll then send you a statement about my policies and fees. The first interview is at least an hour long and it's a little over $300. Follow-up interviews are much less. Um, and I see patients about once a month, generally. Uh, also, uh, at my website, I also have this e-course, which I'm really proud of. So if you're a mother or father or a health or medical practitioner or anyone that just wants to learn to use the medicines, you won't learn to treat chronic problems, mind you, from this course. Right. You won't learn to learn to treat serious diseases. But for a lot of common ailments, the, the first aid and what I call second aid of colds and coughs and headaches and acute yeah. allergy symptoms and uh, so many other, you know, common acute ailments. Uh, you know, here's where. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, that's and, and, what and is so I, great. Yeah. That's what's I actually have a separate website just for the e-course and that's called homeopathic familymedicine.com. Okay. And although you'll get a lot of information about my e-courses at homeopathic.com, there's a, a more uh, free videos and more information at homeopathicfamilymedicine.com. Wonderful. Well, Dana, thank you for taking as much time as you did. I am so grateful. The people who are going to listen to this are going to be opened up to a wealth <laughs> a wealth of information that is so far superior, at least I feel and you feel so far superior to, you know, what allopathic medicine does for us. Well, you know, it's just, it's nice to have an additional school of thought and practice in medicine. It just is. Yes. And I mean, it, believe me, I, uh, a year ago, I had a uh, hip replacement, and that's what conventional medicine does well. I mean, emergency room and uh, surgery often is very important, really great. Yes. We, yep. I'm not against any of that. No, it's the internal medicine that I have a difficulty with. Yes, and, I agree. Um, at the same time, if you don't have anything else, you know, sometimes you got to do whatever you got to do. That's very true. All well, right. thank you again. It's a pleasure. Um, talking to you tonight, and I wish you well. All right. Happy day. Thank you, you too. Bye-bye.